Yes, this is EM Case's Best Case Ever mini-podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman. Before we dive into this month's Best Case Ever on alcohol withdrawal with my longtime friend, Sarah Gray, I got an audio note, or rather a rant, you might call it, from Anand Swami Nathan, otherwise known as Swami, the great EM educator out of New York, who you probably heard on Core EM or Rebel EM or MRAP or through the Teaching Institute. He, he seems to be everywhere. Actually, we're on the organizing committee for the podcasting course together coming up in April, and he's been great to work with. Very creative dude with amazing ideas. Anyhow, he had some interesting opinions on how we should handle digitoxicity in the setting of hyperkalemia that I won't give away now. I'll let him explain. Then I'll give you my two cents based on further conversations with Ed Etchels, who was the guest expert on the Hyper-K episode. And then we'll go right on to Sarah Gray's best case ever. So here's Swami. Hey, Anton. Swami here. Just finished listening to your EM Cases podcast on hyperkalemia, and I just wanted to share a couple of thoughts. First of all, thanks for taking on hyperkalemia EM Cases style. This is a great primer on the topic for students and residents, and it was a great review for seasoned faculty as well. You guys did a great analysis of the literature that guides management. I was particularly happy to see that you glossed over the binding agents since there's clearly no utility in the emergent setting, but there was lots of other great stuff here as well. One area I wanted to comment on was the issue of giving calcium in dig toxic patients with hyperkalemia and the phenomena of stone heart. Now, I'm no toxicologist, and I don't even play one on TV, but I have discussed this particular dogmatic teaching with our tox gurus here at Bellevue. Now, it wasn't stated in the podcast, and I know this wasn't a podcast dedicated to dig toxicity, but that the presence of a potassium over five with dig toxicity is a clear marker of badness. These patients do not do well unless they're treated very aggressively for the dig toxicity with digibind. I just want to make sure that everyone's very clear on that particular point. Now, there are really two different situations that arise with dig and hyperkalemia. There's the patient with either an ECG concerning for hyperkalemia where you don't know what the dig level is, or you might not even know that the patient's on dig. And then there's the patient with hyperkalemia and you know they're dig toxic, either by a level, a story of an overdose, or something on the ECG that gives it away. For the patient with a concern for hyper-K and you don't have a dig level or know that the patient's on dig, I think you have to give the calcium. Just as you guys state, hyperkalemia without dig toxicity is going to be far more common than hyperkalemia with dig toxicity. So if the patient has a concern for hyperkalemia with ECG changes, go ahead and give the calcium. What about the patient with a known or highly suspected dig toxicity and hyperkalemia? Is the calcium going to cause stone heart? Probably not. The evidence that this happens really comes from case reports where the patients that are in the case reports have multiple other issues involved, which may have caused their bad outcome. However, there are other pressing questions to ask. Bob Hoffman published a great editorial on this topic back in 2003 in the Journal of Toxicology, and I'll send you a copy of that if you want to put it into a post. In patients with dig toxicity and hyperkalemia, the hyperkalemia results from poisoning of that sodium-potassium pump, leading to a shift of potassium from intracellular to extracellular. Total body potassium is typically normal, or sometimes it's even low. 
In addition to the potassium shift, intracellular calcium levels are increased. So given this state, is there any evidence that exogenous calcium will provide a benefit to altering membrane potentials as you would see in typical hyperkalemia settings? Not really. Physiologically, exogenous calcium probably isn't going to have much of an effect. So it's not really that we believe that calcium administration is going to cause stone heart in these patients with ditch toxicity, but rather that exogenous calcium simply won't help these patients who are ditch toxic. What they need is digibind. And this is where I take a bit of issue with the cast because the role of digibind isn't mentioned and it's life-saving. Hyperkalemia with ditch toxicity, give digibind as soon as you can. You can also give meds that shift potassium, though it's unclear if they'll work. And if you want, calcium, I guess you could give it, probably won't hurt, but it's unlikely to help either. All right, that's all I've got to add. Thanks for the great podcast, Anton. So Dr. Etchels and I agree that digibind is the most important drug for management of hyperkalemia due to digitoxicity, which we kind of glossed over in the Hyper-K podcast. However... In a patient with hyperkalemia and digitoxicity, if the ECG changes are typical for hyper-K, then it makes sense physiologically to give IV calcium. Now, if the ECG changes are typical for digitoxicity, so for example, PAT with block and multifocal ventricular premature beats, or another typical digitoxicity ECG would be the so-called regularized atrial fibrillation, due to complete AV nodal block with accelerated junctional escape beats, then it doesn't make sense to give IV calcium. So I think the bottom line is, for patients suspected of dig toxicity based on history or typical ECG findings, digibind is your best friend. However, if the ECG looks typical for hyper-K, it's probably wise to give calcium as well. Now let's change gears and go on to what you've all been waiting for, Dr. Gray's best case ever. In anticipation of our main episode on EM cases for alcohol withdrawal management with Dr. Melkahan, Dr. Bug Borgenvog, and Dr. Sarah Gray, I have the pleasure, and I can't believe it's been this long because Sarah and I have known each other since our days at McGill University in the, I won't say it is when it was, but it was a, a long ago. time ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I have the pleasure of having for the first time on EM Cases, Dr. Sarah Gray, ED intensivist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, give us her best case ever when it comes to alcohol withdrawal. Dr. Oh. Gray? Sarah, I can't call you Dr. Gray. I usually no, call people by their last name. And I have the utmost of respect uh, for you, Sarah. But, you know, we were like study buddies back then. So, Sarah, what's your best case ever? Okay. So this, this I think, for me was a really memorable case and sort of started my interest in, in alcohol withdrawal. So I was a medical student uh, many years ago, sadly, uh, and quite a naive medical student. And I was on my internal medicine rotation. Uh, and we had admitted a patient, a woman in her 40s, to the inpatient ward, and she had come in with pancreatitis. As it happened, she was a well-known lawyer in the city, and she didn't have any past medical history. Uh, she said uh, no surgeries, no medications, uh, no alcohol. And so at home, she had been vomiting for a few days, three or four days, with some abdominal pain. 
And then she actually got so dehydrated that she had a brief syncopal event, uh, and that was the moment when her husband convinced her to come into the emergency department. So she came in, she was admitted to our service, and she came up to the floor where she was getting pretty basic stuff. She was getting IV fluids, she was getting some antiemetics for her quite profound nausea and vomiting. Uh, We were going to get an ultrasound the next morning. We'd sent off a bunch of tests. At that stage, you couldn't get an ultrasound overnight. And things were fairly stable over the night while we were looking after her. She was getting a bit better. Uh, She had stopped vomiting, uh, although she still remained a bit tachycardic. And in the morning, we went to round on her. And at that stage, vitals were okay, except she still had the tachycardia. She was a bit sweaty that morning. And we just standard medicine team coming in. We said, hi, you know, how are you today? And she said, well, I'm fine, but... I really don't like all those spiders on the wall. Um, this hospital is just not up to standards. And uh, She's a lawyer. So. She's a lawyer. And she said it quite seriously. Like she was judging us a little, I think, that we worked in so decrepit a place. And, and we, in fact, all turned to look at the wall. Um, I mean, because maybe, maybe there were spiders, uh, except we couldn't see any spiders. And then we're all staring at the wall and the team has that moment of pause and our eyebrows all go up a little and... We turn back to her and we mention that that we can't see any spiders. Uh, And she became increasingly agitated and argumentative um, and spent some time trying to convince us about the spiders. Like clearly a very educated lady used to arguing her side of the point. And we, we asked her again about alcohol, which she continued to deny. Uh, We asked her husband separately who said, nope, she never drinks alcohol. Uh, She only drinks cranberry juice. She drinks it constantly, many, many glasses, every, every day, every evening, all the time, cranberry juice. It's, it's her drink of choice. And, and so dur- throughout the duration of her stay, uh, she had negative tox screens. Uh, we could never confirm that any of this was alcohol-related, uh, but we remained quite suspicious. And so we started treating her that morning with diazepam, first orally and then intravenously. And at the same time, we were doing the rest of our delirium workup. Uh, So we were testing for infections. We did tox screens, uh, testing her heart, testing her thyroid, sort of the full internal medicine. You know, you write your page-long differential and then you just go for it with your orders. Uh, Except everything was negative. Imaging of her head, negative. Imaging of her abdomen, negative. The only thing that took the edge off for this woman was diazepam. And as it turns out, surprise, surprise, she has quite a tolerance for diazepam. She got to 100 milligrams of a total dose and then 200 and then 300. And by now I'm starting to feel a little nervous. We're getting a little out of my depth. That's a lot of diazepam. It's a lot of diazepam, right? I thought so, too. I mean, I didn't know much, but I still thought that that seemed like a lot. Uh, And we go to see her for for evening rounds, and she's getting worse, not better. So she's still there on the ward, but she is now agitated to the point of uh, screaming occasional obscenities. Uh, She is sweating. She is vividly hallucinating. She actually has a bit of an altercation with one of the nurses and kicks the nurse uh, and ends up in restraints. 
and she is livid. She is threatening to sue everybody in the room. Her husband is in the room dialing all of his friends who are judges and lawyers. He, in fact, gets a judge on the phone who wants to ask me for an update over the phone. I have no idea what to say to this guy. Lovely. Uh, he's writing down everybody's CPSO number. I didn't even have – it's like your license <laughs> number. I didn't even have a license yet. I was just a medical student. And when he found out I didn't have a license, he wanted me ejected from the room. So by this stage, it's I, chaos. You still became an, an ED intensivist. I know, right? Like, what was I thinking? Uh, no. But it, it was just it was insane. So I'm I'm the clerk on this team. I'm in way over my head. My junior resident is there with me and she's taking the the majority of the verbal abuse at that stage. We've called for help from a variety of different services. We've called the ICU. We've called our senior. We've called our staff. We just generally need help. And at this stage, the senior resident waltzes in and she comes with our salvation, which in the end was a syringe and a large bottle of propofol. Um, And she ignores the verbal battering that's still going on uh, and ignores a number of hospital safety policies and pushes uh, 40 milligrams of IV propofol. To be clear, this is not my recommended approach on a ward bed with no monitoring, but this is in fact uh, what happened. And at the time, I had just come off my anesthesia rotation where we had learned about the risks of propofol and the hypotension, the apnea, dropping your GCS. So I thought, oh, oh my God, what have we just done? But the, it, the patient, within a few seconds, stops fighting against her restraints and sits and looks up at the senior and says, hi, who are you? She blinks and introduces herself and the lawyer introduces herself back and we start to have a civilized conversation, uh, and that conversation lasts about 45 seconds until the propofol is starting to wear off again, uh, and the agitation resumes and more propofol goes in uh, until we are running a propofol drip uh, on the floor in our non-intubated patient. But with that, she is doing beautifully. We keep her on a standing diazepam, so every hour she's getting another significant diazepam dose, but she's also running on an IV drip of propofol, and with that is wide awake, is appropriate, seems competent, and of course we should have transferred her to the ICU. Certainly these people must go to the ICU, but as as it happened that night, she didn't go to the ICU, and in fact, when we rounded on her the next morning, she was sitting up in bed, she had her glasses on. Her laptop was open on her lap. She was working on something to do with her job, uh, still on the propofol drip, uh, still on the diazepam. This completely blew my mind. And this is when I thought, I need to learn more about alcohol withdrawal. This is completely mind-boggling and interesting to me. And in fact, she asked to go home later that day. She felt so well. Uh, And it's not that common, I think, that we send inpatients uh, home straight from IV propofol uh, to home is not a a common discharge move. But in fact, you know, I watched the senior giving her her discharge instructions and uh, we had given her some tabs of Valium to go home with, which would not be our standard emergency department practice. But we wanted to be able to bridge this woman for a couple hours. And while she still vehemently denied drinking alcohol, um, she promised to resume her cranberry juice habit just as soon as she got in the door. And she left quite happily, never to return. Wow. It's amazing what can happen at Janice General. I know, right? 
there, there are some pitfalls there that we should try not to fall into. I wouldn't advise that people follow the management plan we followed that day. Right. So I, I guess uh, I guess the take-home points here, um, I can kind of anticipate a bunch of uh, pitfalls of alcohol withdrawal management. Um, wh- what did you learn from this from this case, Dr. Gray, uh, without giving it all away for our upcoming main episode on, on alcohol withdrawal? Sure. So I think you have to have a clinical suspicion for delirium tremens, even in people where the history of alcohol use may not be clear, and that uh, managing that appropriately is important for patients' outcomes. I think in general, uh, propofol drips means you should go to the ICU, uh, so perhaps don't keep them on the floor the way we did there. But I think it just goes to show you that this is a serious diagnosis that can pop up when we're not expecting it. So you need to keep your eyes open. Absolutely. So to learn more about alcohol withdrawal management, there's a lot of nuances that I've learned in in, uh, researching and prepping for for the big episode coming up. Dr. Kahan, Dr. Borgenvog, and Dr. Gray. So until next time, take it easy. Oh, and before I forget one more thing, there's only a handful of spots left for the EM Cases course in Toronto in February. It's the podcast taken to the next level in person. If you want a spot, just go to emcases.com and click on courses.